Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. Role-playing inspiration can come from anywhere, and we use our side quest to explore TV shows, movies, books, and other RPGs that influence our playstyle and storytelling. Whether we draw from intriguing plot points, amazing characters, or, well, you know, just kind of geek out about it, it should be a fun trip, and we're glad you came along for the ride. Here's a message from friends of the show. Hey there, Steve here from the Dads with Nerdy Ambitions podcast, the podcast that brings nerd culture and pop culture together in the 21st century. With my brother Joe, we sit down and talk to the gurus of your favorite nerdy fandoms. You've got the questions, we've got the answers. So join us every week on the DNA podcast, where we know it's not just a hobby, it's hereditary. Welcome, everybody, to tonight's side quest. We are really excited to be bringing this particular episode to you tonight because we are going back to talking about the first episode of a brand new show. And it's a show that isn't in the Star Trek, Star Wars, or MCU universes. So this is a kind of a, a brand new uh, a brand new series, a brand new universe for us. Yes. Tonight, we are going to be talking about the Nevers, which is a brand new show that just came out on HBO. Uh, we're going to be talking about the show a little bit here at the beginning, and then we're going to be talking about some of the characters that are in the show and kind of how we feel like they slot into uh, your typical D&D tabletop role-playing game. So, Lewanico, why don't we go ahead and get started tonight? Uh, let's start with overall thoughts. Where, What did you think about the show? I really liked the show. I thoroughly enjoyed it really fell in love with the world building that went on in the first yeah. episode and the way the world was built. There are tons of different ways to tell stories. And when we get to the actionable intel part, I'm going to go into some of the specifics on this issue. The creators of this show did a masterful job in the way they revealed the world. They only let us know what we needed to know to understand the scenes we were in, but we got a greater understanding with each increasing scene. It started very, very small. It started with each individual person. With people, yeah, exactly. It started on people's faces and their actions. And I think in very, in a very short amount of quick scenes, you got an idea of what each of the characters, certainly the ones we're going to talk about tonight, but what each of the characters that are currently primary and a couple secondary in the show were about. Yep we got their character and what they were doing in a very short amount of time. And I thought that was very well done. And then we understood the history of this world 
as the first episode revealed. I thought that was a masterstroke in story cre- creation. Absolutely. And I think that this this opening sequence, probably the opening five minutes of this show, when there is no dialogue and really we're just seeing sort of uh, vignettes of the characters in their everyday life before capital letters, the big event happens that kind of makes them turn. You know, as we're kind of seeing them in the day in the life, the soundscape and the music that they use at this particular in, in this element is absolutely brilliant. It is it's somewhat minimalistic. It's sort of Philip Glassy kind of in that neighborhood, but still it kind of it has this air of positivity about it. It has this air of mystery about it. It's really, really well done. Um, you know, I, I'm. Obviously, you all know I'm a huge music guy, and I was really, really impressed with the way the music was used throughout this entire episode, but specifically at the, at the beginning, in those first few minutes when it was when it was world building. You're absolutely right. And so storytellers out there, take that as a sign that using music in your game as background can enhance the world building that you're trying to do if you find the right stuff. And that's that is sometimes the challenge, but the right stuff is out there and definitely it's it's worth the look. There's definitely an episode about how to put music in a podcast episode and how to put music in in your games at your table. What's the right moment? How loud do you want it? Do you want it to have lyrics? Do you not want it to have lyrics? There's a whole discussion in that, and we're going to get together on that and put that together at some point in the future. But insofar as this show was done, again, exceptionally well scored, and I really liked it. It it was something, and I use the phrase a lot, it's additive rather than subtractive, and it this was definitely additive. And as this episode went on, I think that some of the music beats were not only additive, they were multiplicative. They just, they really drove points home. You know, there were scenes in the middle of this that uh, the creep factor went up on high and the music hit that beat perfectly. I've got a younger team in the house and he was not digging the opera scene. Oh, yeah. No, that was... That was, it was pretty visceral. Yeah. And they didn't really shy away from it. uh, When we start talking about the characters, we're definitely going to be talking about that opera scene because, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of fruit on that vine. Poison though it may be. <laughs> this this is the probably the point in our in our introduction where we should remind people uh, this is not a spoiler free discussion. We're definitely going to be talking about things that happened in the first episode, uh, but only in the first episode because that's actually all that's come out at this point uh, that we're recording. So just uh, just beware if you haven't seen the first episode yet, pause the podcast, go watch the first one, come back, and we'll continue. And then talk. join the conversation. In addition to the music and the world building, this first episode had a whole lot going on with it. And one of the things that I just loved about it was the visuals. At the game table, your visuals have to be descriptive. You have to speak on these things. Maps are cool. Minis are cool. But as a storyteller, you have to describe things. You have to be the senses for your players. In the film medium and in the television medium, the creators of the show, the showrunners, are effectively the storytellers here, right? They have to create that world. They have to have a bunch of experts build sets, populate the sets, the right amount of lighting, the right amount of smoke. Every scene really fit what I would have expected. It fits my fantasy Victorian era image. And I am a fan of Victorian era stuff. So I am a huge fan. I think I've mentioned it uh, previously about my love of all of the uh, classic 
uh, writers, Dickens, uh, Mary Shelley, um, Bram Stoker, uh, uh, and so many others. I, I, you know, so many books that I've read from the turn of the century, either just before the 1900s or just after, I've read all, so many different things and loved all of that. And this is kind of that era, right? It has that feel. It is kind of the, the feel that a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen should have had. And certainly the comic book League of Extraordinary Gentlemen had. The movie, unfortunately, though I like it more than most, was lacking in those areas. These are the kind of visuals I want in my Victorian era fantasy show. It, it was very much kind of a, a London version uh, of Wild Wild West, right? Where it had this merging between the mundane and technology that was uh, was extraordinary, right? It, it sort of it sort of wowed people that saw it for the first time, but they weren't like scared of it or surprised by it or anything like that. And I thought that that was that that was really well done. Um, and I think that the the color palette that they use in the show was applied really artfully. Like in moments that are supposed to be flashbacks, everything has this really super muted color palette to go ahead and signify like, nope, this is something that happened in the past. This is a memory. This is something like that. Or when Amal went into uh, her ripples, as she called them. Beautiful right? phrase. That would also, yeah, absolutely. Just fabulous, you know? You know, it was kind of like they took great pains to differentiate between when she was seeing things that were not yet real and when she was and when we were actually seeing them for the first time that as they actually happened. I thought that they did a really good job to go ahead and, and differentiate that, so... And, and let me put a, a punctuation on the, on Josh's point here. That is something that gets missed in so, so many, many fictional pieces. There are so many shows that do flashbacks that either overdo the muted tones or the, the color palette when they show flashbacks or flash forwards, or there's shows that just don't even give a crap and just do them, and you're left guessing. And I got to tell you, when you're watching something that has time elements, like a little forward and a little back, if you can't clearly understand what you're watching, it makes things confusing. Yeah, it's the death knell of a show. We've said that before about how a sci-fi fantasy sh show can really quickly start to run off the rails if they start messing with time travel and don't do it well. Um, and there are a handful of shows, I think, that we could point to um, and say that they handled the time travel aspects well, you know, but most shows don't. But but visually, they let it down. Like, even, like, yeah. any time... Like, when, I remember when we were... Um, and I say I remember, like, it was so long ago. I, I literally watched the show for a second time just a couple of hours ago, so I have all these visuals still very fresh in my memory here. Um, but... Like in the introduction and in the ending scene, when we see Penance kind of um, in, in the before time, like she looks like she could walk out of one of those Victorian ceramic plates that they that they have with like you know the the buttoned up victorian ladies with you know with the with the rosy cheeks and everything like that like the way that they made her look in particular uh, the way that they made that that actress look was so it see it felt so victorian it felt so right um it was really really well done a couple of the scenes which could have been passed off as oh this is just the bad guys plotting uh, the boardroom scene between the nobles and, 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 the, uh, and the high bankers and all of that. That is often in many shows a throwaway scene. Oh, the bad guys are plotting. But 
it was an opportunity to story build. They really discussed things in a way to really set the tone that this is more than just the powered versus the non-powered. Yep. It's the fact that so many powered people are not people of station. That's really the key. So it's disturbing it's them, not yeah. just the powers. It's like we can't have people but without names yeah, yeah. have power over people with names. That's just not going to go. And how real world is that to what we live in in this oh, world? Absolutely. Totally. It is largely the argument for establishment things like cable networks versus streaming. It's like, what are all these upstarts doing on YouTube, making podcasts? We hold the power. You know, you know, there is an element of that that speaks to a universal truth that when people, common people, everyday people, when you and me have an ability, a power or a resource that the power elite do not have, yep. there's going to be a conflict on some level. It's going to happen. And, and the fact that they took one scene to set that stage and the actor who plays uh, Lord Masson, uh, I've watched him in many shows. I, I, uh, his name is escaping me at the moment, but I can tell you he's a fantastic actor. And so well chosen. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I can not strongly recommend enough that you watch the making of this episode bit that comes after episode one, um, where they introduce the actors um, in particular, man, if you listen to the actress who plays Malady, whole that actress is insanely talented the amount of fun that she has with this character that is so horrendously broken. No one should have this much fun playing someone who is this crazy. And yet this actress is and more power to her. Like she is finding something in malady that is deep down inside and she is pulling it out. You know, it's like we talked about this. Um, I, I don't remember which episode it was, but we were talking about Stephen King's the other half and how, you know, sometimes when you play a character, you have to go to a place that you don't necessarily want to go. Uh, and you kind of you you take it out and you put it on display and then you put it back inside and you just hope that it doesn't get a foothold because you don't you know. And I kind of feel like that's what she's channeling into. Yeah, for those of us, uh, maybe a bit of foreshadowing as I make this statement, for those of us who have played or like playing Warlocks, there are times where you can just get the feel. You're not quite touching the Eldritch window, but something dark on the other side of that window is right there, and you're just close yeah. enough where you can feel it vibrating in your hand. And you know it's looking back, yeah. And you can almost feel it as static coming off of that that eldritch window, that wall, and then you you reach in and you grasp just a little bit and you hold it for just a moment. You utilize that power and then you let it go and come back to this side. You're forever changed, but you let it go just a little bit. And that's what she was tapping into. Realize what you just did. It's like, oh God, okay, I don't, I don't actually want to touch that. And then uh, I think that there's there's one other quick thing about the kind of making of the show and the the structure of the show that I think, so Lewanika and I talked about this earlier today. We want to mention it, but we don't want to drag it out. I never would have known that Joss Whedon was involved with this show until his name appeared in the credits. Um, and then after watching the episode, uh, looking it up and basically seeing that he was involved with the show for a little bit, dropped out of the show, and then within a couple of months, all the controversy about uh, about Mr. Whedon came out. It is an appreciated and masterful stroke by HBO uh, how well they 
cut his name out of anything to do with this show. And I think that I think that there are a lot of times that we lambaste media companies for embracing people of troubled character because of the content that they produce. And here's HBO doing exactly the opposite. They are saying, you know what? He contributed. He's still going to get a credit in the show, but he's not going to be in any of the promotional materials. And that's that. And so kudos to them. Like I said, we thought and had a couple different conversations about how or if we should broach this topic. But the reality is we celebrate good and decent treatment of good and decent people on this show, right? We want people to be able to go to work and be treated well. We want to go to work in our real lives and be treated well. There are people in the world who do not do that. They don't treat people well. They are in all walks of life. They are everywhere. And it is very hard in Hollywood, which is really a microcosm of the real world, to find places where they haven't touched. They're out. They're just out there. They are. I, I don't. I'm not using that as a, a slight against Hollywood. What I will say is they have not had a great track record in how to deal with that, because generally it has been, as Josh said, if they're making enough money, we'll pretend it didn't happen. In this case, it's clear they were not pretending it didn't happen. But you can't take away a credit for something somebody already yeah. finished right. or worked on. But what you can do is say you're not working here anymore. And you can say he's out. And they didn't say that specifically. But I have a sense that if this gets a second season or as we go, we're not going to see his name in future. Stuff. Yeah, I mean, he's already it's already out there that he's no that he is not he will not be credited on. I think he might have a credit on the second show, but that there will be no more credits for him uh, for the rest of the season because uh, he was not involved in the entirety of the uh, of the season. So now along those lines, and this is pretty much all we'll say on it. I did see a posting that said. The show is very similar to any other Joss Whedon correct creation in the structure of the different characters. And while there are noted similarities between this group of characters and other groups of characters, I think it's important to note that they're not identical to the other characters. There are significant differences. However, there are roles, and that's something that applies to the tabletop game. The reality is a party is going to have certain roles. Yeah, they're going to be our they're going to fill... And you're going to fill them with certain archetypes. And while you can toy around with them, twist them, you can play against type from time to time. The reality is those roles exist because they exist. And they're going to be filled with basic types of characters because there are basic types of characters. What is interesting is that people take that as copycatting or laziness. When I take a look at it more as what are the differences? And wow, that was a great new take on it. And I think we're, as the show goes on, as we talk about different shows and we talk about characters and we try to D&D class them up, we're going to go into that's a great way to do that. And you can look at these shows as fantastic means of how to build characters to fill archetypes. You don't have to copy, but that's a great way to twist it. Now put it on your own thing. Give it your own character. Give it your own background. Take this background and make it your own thing. Or make or have that character role type and give it a different background and see how that plays it a little differently. It's a great place to start from. And I think that's what I took away the most from this show as it relates to the tabletop game is, wow, what a great collection of characters that I could easily see in an Eberron game or a Ravenloft game 
and that would be awesome. Yep. So speaking of which, let's dive right into, I think what both of us felt was going to be the meat of tonight's episode. And we're going to talk about a handful of the characters from the show and where we think they fit, uh, which roles and archetypes, uh, which lineages, which classes, that sort of thing, do these characters fit into, into a tabletop role-playing game. So let's start with Amalia True, because I think that there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of potentials for this character. They, she could be slotted into a bunch of different things. And we talked about this a, a bunch, you know, is she a, uh, is she, you know, because of all of her hand-to-hand combat stuff, is she a monk? I, I think that was a tougher, a tougher sell. Is she more of a, a pure fighter, you know, because of the, the ability that she's got to, clearly she could take a punch take a knife, take a stab, take a slice. She can take a hit, right? A little action surge. Right, exactly, right? A little second wind there in, yep. in, 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 yep. in the big fight where she got knocked down. So I think f- fighter is a good option, but the best option it really has to do with not just her ability as a fighter, but also as her, as her approach to those that she cares about and those that she's trying to protect. She is, she values uh, innocent life, right? She she is a protector of the innocents. Um, she is patient. She uh, is thoughtful in her action and considers how she's going to, pr- to approach a situation, which is very easy when you've got the gift of foresight. She is wise. Um, she is trying to keep, keep her mind clear, but does not admit defeat well. <laughs> and violence is a close second resort to her. I wouldn't quite say that it's the last resort. And if it is the last resort, she is very quick to go ahead and go to that last resort. Like, like you were saying earlier, you know, it's a, sometimes, you know, she might be throwing the first punch, but that's also because she knows the other first punch is coming. So she's just trying to stay ahead of it. Um, so my, my vote, I think went to the oath of redemption paladin for Amalia True. Yeah, I really lean towards that. And it's actually during our lead up to you saying that, because that was actually kind of where I started. And then I talked you out of it. Yeah. <laughs> and then you talked me out of it because I was thinking about that fight scene uh, at the opera. And I'm like, wow, she really did kind of dig in, get that second win. She had a couple extra gears in that fight that that I was thinking uh, um and and she also did that when she was fighting the masked guys during the carriage scene where it's like she really had a second kind of way to go and i'm thinking that is very fighter like yeah. i can i don't know what subclass it would be but there're definitely some serious fighter class abilities that 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 were shining through do i just be your straight up champion honestly like that's that's again that's kind of like champion of the innocence kind of thing you know yeah uh, that could that could in fact be uh, one of the things you mentioned about her that I think go- should be mentioned here is in building her character and thinking about her background or backstory. I think it's important to note that this is a woman who we saw just based on what was on film gave up. Yeah. Yep. She was done. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know if she was carrying food or clothing or what she was carrying. I couldn't really tell. Whatever it was, it was clear this was a woman who was done being a woman in Victorian England, and she was done. Wherever she was going, she turned around and said, I'm out. Yep. On a serious note, if you're ever feeling that way, please reach out, find somebody, talk to them. As it relates to story, it was an interesting way to say she's a different person on the other end of this. 
not just because of the power, but because she let go. And I think some of the harsher elements of her, the fact that violence was not the last resort, but but not the first resort, uh, the fact that she wasn't taking, she was polite and dignified in her responses, but she was very direct. And she was not having anybody talk down to her at any point during this episode. And it, and and uh, you know how how's the statement going going? And Josh, get ready with the with the sound effect. No <laughs> f- are given. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of those things where I was watching a great depiction of a strong woman. Like, had we seen this show, I am thinking like have, if, at the end of this episode, if everything we saw uh, this week holds true to the end, no pun intended, we are looking at a character that at the very least probably would have gotten an honorable mention on our uh, on our women yeah. in media uh, episode. It's a great character. It really is. And, you know, and I think that, so th- that's kind of the other side of this character, right? Is that the thing that really got me is in the line when they're in the carriage talking to the beggar king uh, and he threatens to slice up her face. Um, and in this brilliant moment of acting, the character just leans into the knife on her cheek and says, this isn't my face. I was just like, it's a brilliant moment how she stares yeah. down who is supposedly one of the scariest MFers in London at this moment in time. And that's why I really went with the with the side effect, that the thought that not only is she probably a paladin, but she's most likely a reborn. Yes, I think she's definitely has that element of I'm coming back. I've come back. I've seen the other side. Yeah. I've seen the other side and not even I'm sure of everything about me, but I'm sure about what the heck I'm about to do. That scene that you mentioned, by the way, I I think I'm going to have us jump out of order and we'll move into the beggar king. That's fine. What I think, what I think is very interesting about that scene is you had a moment, one scene between two characters who they talked about knowing each other or getting together prior to, but that was their first meeting on screen. And it was clearly an epic moment in the in that episode, and it was an ep- a moment where you saw the trueness of both characters in two lines. His line, followed by her line, where she said, you know, I'll cut your face into a mess. You know, that yeah. was so, <laughs> like, so well done. Yeah. You know, so well done. I And another great actor in a great role. I really loved it. Uh, I previously spoke about the mastermind as being one of my favorite subclasses mm-hmm. of the Rogue, my favorite class. Josh, you pegged it when you called it. This is uh, the Beggar King as a mastermind. Absolutely. Now, there are different ways to think of a mastermind. It's a different one, yeah. This is clearly a rough and tumble. And on the on the seriously sketch side, I loved this depiction of this underworld monster. Yeah, yeah. That is so controlling. Like, just everybody lives in fear of him. You know, his stature, his presence, the way he carries himself. Just the way the other actors looked in fear when he spoke. He, so even well his, um, his, uh, the Goliath, for lack of a better term, the Goliath that just like looks in the carriage when he first gets in and he just, and he just looks at us and says, can you give us the room? <laughs> Come on. <Yep. laughs> it's hysterical. It's a funny line. Like they're, oh, yeah. they're, in a, they're in a carriage in the middle of the street of London. <laughs> it's like, can you give us the room? Like, let's. 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, a mastermind through and through. And and you're right, not the kind of not the mastermind that we see um, like from Leverage, right? Leverage was the example of the mastermind that we gave before. He's suave, he's debonair, he kind of controls everything, but he does it with this kind of honor among thieves sort of thing. You know, not Declan Oren, not the Beggar King. That Beggar, he is he is. Uh, he is low. He is uh, he is dirty. Uh, he is he will he will screw you to make a buck every single time just because he can. And he rules those streets through fear. Like that's more of what he's concerned about when he's talking for the first time with Amalia is that how do you think how do you think this works that you get to call me out like a dog <laughs> and I come running like that's not the way this works, you know, um, and and she but it did. But it did. <laughs> but it did exactly you know i mean just just a brilliant moment between those two characters and honestly two fabulous fabulous characters obviously we're going to see more of amalia true i hope we see more of the beggar king because that was such a fabulous role and what everybody who's playing the tabletop game who's thinking of man every time i see th this class or this subclass it's always played this way understand this is one of the things you can take a class and by giving it a different background giving it a low ground, a low born background. This is a criminal uh, background or a criminal scion background, or perhaps it's even a beggar background, beggar king, you know, uh, versus another mastermind who might've been a, sol a soldier or something else. I mean, let's be honest. There are masterminds who play chess. There are masterminds who play go. This is a mastermind who plays mumble peg, but you've got the dull daggers. <laughs> Oh, perfect. All right. Let's uh let's let's move on here. So let's talk. I think this one I think is much easier to go ahead and pin down. And this is this is Penance, um Amalia True's partner in in uh in not partner in crime, but partner in not crime. There will be crime. Yeah, partner. There will be <laughs> there will be crime. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put on my I'm gonna do my own ripple here. Yes, there will be crime. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and that's because Amalia is clearly a little gray around the edges. Penance Adair, however, is not. She is as like lawful, good, squeaky clean, goody two shoes as they come, and she is a fantastic artificer. I mean, just the inventions that she comes up with and the way that she describes it about how um, how she just sees how energy wants to move and how it wants to rest and that helps her build things. But even even before she was turned, you know, when uh, when they had that scene of her working the water pump and the and the, the thing breaks on it and she grabs the clothespin and puts it in the thing to go ahead and make it work again. So this was clearly a woman that had ingenuity, had creativity ha before she was touched. And then she gained the ability to go ahead and actually do more things with it. It made her a a better version of herself without corrupting her, her innocence or her, um, her outlook on the world. Yeah. I love so many things about this character. I think it's not an actor I'm familiar with, but it's an actor I'm going to get familiar with. I love the way, uh, just the way she moved through scenes, her clear and decisive backing of Amalia true. It was very reminiscent of Gabrielle and Xena. Yep in that regard but a different kind of level i think um just based on the medium and, and the modernization of characterizations in general but it was very much along those lines we were looking at 
clearly a, a Holmes and Watson type of relationship that really had some great stuff. I really, when I was looking at the two characters, was thinking of the two characters from Doctor Who, the one who is uh, that reptilian race. And, I, and, and forgive me, my fellow Whovians, that I'm not remembering the names, but it's been a while since I've seen those episodes. Can't help you there. Yeah, yeah but I, I can tell you that I was thinking when I watched the... Um, when I watched the trailers that it was going to be just like that. And it wasn't just like that, but there were shades of that enough to make it familiar, but still enough good stuff to make it brand new. And I think that's what was cool about penance. Like she was not, she was a totally new character, but with shades of other things that made her very familiar and friendly and inviting as a character and a great invite into this world. Like you almost, wanted to see this world through her eyes more than anybody else's. And I think that was very well done. And as a gamer and a tabletop gamer, one of the things that I always thought was interesting about the Artificer class was, as cool as I thought it was, as much as I've enjoyed and liked the abilities of the Artificer, I have never had a great handle on how I would play one until I watched this show. This gave me the tapestry upon which I intend to weave. Moving on here again to a character that, man, every party has one. They just happen. Um, And this, we're going to talk about Hugo Swan. Usually played by me. (laughs) Hugo Swan and the horny bard College of Eloquence. Uh, again, I think I think there is there are really no other choices about who this character, who, who Hugo Swan is. Clearly, College of Eloquence, and he's 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 the horny bard in the party. Although I will say that I'm curious to see where his storyline develops because now that now once they had the reveal after the opera that he's in league with the investigator from Scotland Yard, and that the disappearance of the girls has something to do with the sex cult that he's running. Like, I don't know what's going on there. That almost, it, it's weird. Like, that that almost felt like kind of a, like a throwaway line that the writers forgot to take out of the script, like when they were writing it. Like, I, I, I'm really not sure where this is coming, where, where that's going and where that's coming from. Because it seemed like the story was going to be about malady and everything like that and then they introduce this other angle to it it's like oh okay so there's something else going on here right so somewhere earlier i whenever i think of victorian london and i think of any story that's going to focus on gender issues i always think about jack the Ripper. How, how can you not and hg H, H, H. wells i always think about how that has always been used in so many shows, in so many redos, now that it's public domain effectively, that it is almost without mention that if you talk about the gender issues, you bring in a Jack the Ripper type thing. And I thought they were going that route. Like, there's going to be a Jack the Ripper kind of bad guy of the week, maybe bad guy of the quarter season or something like that. And then uh, we got more elements as the episode went on. So I'm not sure where it's going to go. But I think the elements that I thought were Jack the Ripper-esque were actually foreshadowing of this. And the little coin trinkets that he gave out that somebody noticed later on in the previews for next week's episode, it's clearly going to make a reappearance of the coin thing. I think we're, and we're going to get a little bit more of that story. I think Hugo, who started out seeming like, where's this guy going to fit in? He seems kind of foolish. Like he, he plays the fool. He's the fop, yeah. It's clear that he's the sinister one. 
are one of the sinister ones. Like, it almost like where you thought Lord Masson was going to be the bad guy. I think they're setting this up so that Hugo is going to be the bad guy. Lord Masson is going to be the antagonist who's going to have to turn at the end because he's going to recognize the, the big bad guy. Now, I could be way off. But I have a sense that that's yeah. where it's going. Yeah, right. Because, I mean, there there is there any doubt in anybody's head that Hugo killed the woman that was found in the mine? Like, that's how that went down, right? That wasn't like a... I mean, that, that was certainly hinted at. I think Hugo had Beggar King killer because her fingers were taken. Ah. So I think we're going to find out that whatever his cult issue is, he's going to... It's He's using the cop to figure out different things or to not find disappeared peoples. And the beggar King is the one who's going around getting people captured for, him. or, or at least pointing out, pointing them out yeah. and willing to farm out some destruction. Uh, if it's inconvenient for Hugo, yeah, I can buy that. Okay. The beggar King may be the mastermind, but this is where you can watch a bard be very sinister. He can play on one face and he can be something else. I don't know how well that level of sinister works in a party, but for those budding storytellers, it makes for a fantastic, a great NPC who becomes the villain at the end and he wasn't the guy you saw coming. Yep, totally agree. Let's talk about uh, about Hugo's Hugo's kind of partner in this, and that's Augie Bidlow. So the the brother of the woman who owns the orphanage where Amalia and Penance live and, and work. Augie Bidlow, this one was one that posed some confusion for me. I wasn't really sure where he wound up. So we learn at the end of the episode that he is one of the touched, we, we, but we don't know that at the beginning. Um, up until that point, he just sort of seems like the bumbling awkward, socially inept character and is really kind of the counterpoint to Hugo's, you know, very suave, very debonair College of Eloquence bard, right? Um, And so there are some moments that kind of led me to believe that he's maybe some sort of a wizard character uh, because he seems very book smart, but not very socially adept. Uh, maybe a druid character because he has that whole scene with uh, where he's talking about the crows and how um, uh, how he has how did Hugo put it uh, the uh, his 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 great issues with or, with, uh, with with ornithological nomenclature you know like that's like that that's a wizard phrase I'm sorry ornithological nomenclature that's a wizard thing and so the fact that Hugo has heard him say that multiple times you know but like some sort of a wizard some sort of a druid um, I thought maybe at first he could be kind of the the um, the the third edition style adept as an NPC but Lee you you rightly pointed out that he's going to be a bigger character uh in time here it's he's not gonna he's not going to be kind of a uh, uh, s- second fiddle uh especially if it turns out that hugo is really the really the bad guy yeah we're gonna be looking at what could potentially be the fight for augie's soul at some oh, point. oh wow yeah uh you know where does his lo- where does his loyalties lie not literally the fight for his soul heaven and hell but like does he does he land on the side of of good or of, of ill? Can he be corrupted or can he be brought back from corruption? That type of especially thing. when him and Penance uh, had that moment like across the across yeah. the opera where like you know like yeah. 
Exactly, because you've got Penance representing the, this ultimate goodness, and you've got Hugo, who we know, but he, but Augie doesn't know, who's going to represent something much more sinister. And he clearly has a deep friendship with this one, but he clearly has an, an attraction to to Penance. Uh, where does that take him? I think th- that is rife with storytelling potential. So again, I say this as take something like this and think about that. This is the kind of situations that storytellers can put players in. They can have NPCs or other PCs that create this ebb and flow, this tug, this push and pull with their characters between these things. And that's where drama is built. That's where great games are built. That's where memories at the game table get built is through that back and forth. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's take on uh, the the big complicated one. And this is probably the last character that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, but man, the one that is uh, probably one of the richest and let's we'll, let's say it again, probably one of the best acted characters in this show. Um, and that's the character of Malady, who uh, by all intents and purposes is being laid out to be the big bad at this point. On the, on the surface level of this episode, she is the big bad because not everybody in the episode knows. we got this whole irony of situation thing going on where we know that Hugo is bad, but everybody else just thinks it's Malady, right? Yep, exactly. And, and whether or not it's the touched and Malady, like, like how they're, they're kind of discussing, like, how does that work out? But, like, while all this chaos is going on, no one is looking at Hugo as as the potential bad guy. Um, and, you know, we, we talked a lot about Malady, about kind of what role or what what class she fit into. Um, you know, uh, she had some kind of wild barbarian aspects to her um, in that, that scene in the theater when she kills Faust, you know, uh, or when, when she kills when she kills the demon. But I yeah. killed the devil. Yeah. But then uh, then immediately kind of like starts acting like start and I say acting starts acting delusional like why am I here? What am I doing here? And then when she realizes that like everybody else in the theater is just like what is going on? She's like, "Oh, screw it. Just kill them all and get the angel." Like she's like she's not actually as insane. She look, she is crazy, but she's not insane. She's not as insane as she's playing and and it was a Wow, what a what a way to to play that character. Um yeah, this is this is clearly a character and for those of you from the Boston area um who uh was perfectly willing to put her tongue on the third rail, <laughs> right? Um yeah. Sh- she she is whatever happened to her and we know what has happened to her. She she is one of the touch and quite literally touched. Um well, right. I mean, she, she was on her way to an she, asylum already. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, I don't think she was insane at that point. I thought that was a treatment of the fact that problematic women were often put in asylums to keep them quiet or get them out of the hair of domineering husbands or men in their lives. And so I got the impression that she was not insane. She was simply trying to fight for her freedom when this happened and then because she appears to be one of the few people or only people to remember. I think she's the only the one event. so far. Yeah. Possibly true might be the other, but, but uh, because she has that remembrance, she is a little different now. Uh, like she wasn't crazy. She wasn't, pro- uh, didn't have problems inside of her brain, but because she is remembering what she saw, she's having problems inside of her brain. Yeah. 
And the only class that calls that that to mind to me is the warlock yep. pact of the uh, of the old one. I truly think this is a character who's touched, and what a great way to play uh, it! Absolutely fabulous. You know, I totally agree with you on warlock. I tried to make it one of the clockwork uh, warlocks, but I think that this character is just she's too chaotic for that. It, the chaos doesn't fit with that. Uh, but path of the old ones is a fantastic origin uh for this character and because beyond that insanity she knows things she knows things that have happened she remember the whole setup for the opera was that she was there looking for mary brighton the character who was touched and whose power is the ability to sing in such a way that the touched are identified that was a very conscious decision on Malady's part to go after her. Clearly, she is trying to gather more touched, uh, and she needs Mary Brighton, the angel, to do it to to do it successfully. And uh, she's not as crazy as she lets on by any stretch of the imagination, and and she knows things, and so. There is no character that is scarier than the chaotic evil character. Yeah, chaotic evil with limited moments of no control are the most frightening characters because then you don't know what could happen. You touched on something, uh, terrible puns all over this this podcast. Terrible pun. pun. uh, But you you touched on something that I wanted to mention. It's interesting to note that when the angel sang, and the touched were identified, it is important to note that only the touched saw that. That graphic that we saw as an audience member was something only the touched saw. And I didn't pick that out. If there's one flaw with any of the visuals in this whole show, and that was a beautiful set of visuals, by the way, uh, that I would have is I don't think they gave me as an audience member enough context clues to realize nobody else saw that but the touch yeah. and the o- and the only reason i know that is because i watched those special features after the show and it was specifically mentioned that only the touch saw okay that. all right cool that's good to know because i because i thought that um i thought that lord masson recognized it also but um but maybe not but in, and if the sh- it, look if the showrunners say nope we designed it in such a way and this is what this is what the effect is they're the storytellers they get to go ahead and make that de- that determination even if it wasn't clear to us uh, watching it so but again like I said it, th- we talk about quibbles this doesn't even oh, qualify as a quibble not even yeah this was like a a speck you know I had I had I had I had one flicker of an issue certainly did not and, ruin my enjoyment you know that, that's like saying that that the beggar king's teeth were too perfect like that's yes because he's actually an actor in 2021 yes with great teeth that's, that <laughs> that's great teeth yeah so yeah if if you all listening have not picked up on the fact that we really enjoyed this show, we really enjoyed this show. And it's nice to talk about something in a vein that we don't get to talk about very often. I mean, there's not a lot of sort of steampunky Victorian shows out right now. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully this is a sign of more coming. Yeah. And a couple things I want to add to that is, interestingly enough, and I'm not saying we're not going to talk about shows like the Mandalorian or Star Trek, because we love those things. And there's a lot we can take from those to bring to the table. This is probably one of the closest shows to what we do in D&D 5e 
that we've reviewed on this podcast. Yeah, I think so too. This has more direct correlations. And certainly if anybody's playing Eberron, or if I had an interest in playing Eberron, which I kind of do, I would say this gives a great lead into how to do that or how to structure that or how to describe things. There are shows that fit that Eberron feel that, or what could be an Eberron feel. And I think the London we saw in the Nevers could really be quote unquote flea bottom of uh, some of the grand Eberron, Eberron cities. And I really felt strongly that that was a really cool thing. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm actually, I'm beginning an Eberron campaign in just a couple of weeks. I'm super excited. I got my, uh, uh, I, I, I'm playing, I'm playing a Warforged in that game. Anyway, but yeah, this is, if you're playing Eberron, absolutely watch this show. I mean, there's a handful of shows that you should be watching if you're doing an Eberron campaign anyway, but this should definitely get added onto your list. So absolutely well watch it if you're within the sound of our voices or you're listening to this in the year 2087 by all means please go back find a copy of this show and watch this show this is the kind of show that i believe in my heart of hearts will stand the test of time as far as its graphics and its depictions i don't picture this looking old anytime soon let's hope that the rest of the first season is as good as the uh, as the first episode was so uh any last words for you tonight Luanika? Yeah, I think I just want to say this is great. And I want to give a shout out to one of our Facebook followers, Pete Bradshaw. He's the one that said, hey, you guys should uh, give this a listen and probably do a review. So uh, thanks, Pete. This was a great call. Absolutely. It was a great it was a great choice. Thank you very much, Pete. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Uh, Hope you enjoyed the side quest and we will talk to you again uh, next time. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our SideQuest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.